Welcome to Short Course, episode 100, for May 5th, 2023. I'm your host, Ben Barry. This week I have actual shooting stuff to talk about, so uh, we will have a, a brief USPSA drama update at the end, but most of the podcast this week I just want to talk about the first, hopefully, annual 2023 Bluegrass Low Cap Classic, which I haven't heard any announcements about it being next year, but... I, I really hope it happens again because genuinely this is the the most enjoyable match that I've shot in, in years, honestly. South Carolina earlier this year, definitely a close second in terms of stages, staff reset, the whole deal. But honestly, there was uh there was just something going on at this match and I can't quite put my finger on it, but it was it was really a fun time. And I think First off, the the stages were great. They were an excellent mix of all different styles. The different stages were in different sized bays, and so one some were really big and had lots of running around. Some were in some some smaller bays where you were shooting from a smaller shooting area, and you know it was it was a little faster, a little more technical. But honestly, there there was not a, a bad one among them. If I had to pick one that was my least favorite, it was the the fixed time medium course, just because to me, the, all the sort of gamesmanship about which targets should I shoot do, which targets do I skip to me? That's not super interesting to me. I just want it to be, you know, let's shoot heads up. I have, I've yet to really see a, a, a stage that is fixed time that wouldn't, in my opinion, be better as Comstock. I mean, on the one hand, you know, if it's, if the part time is challenging for GMs, then the, the middle of the pack folks aren't even going to get to shoot half the targets. Uh, there was a there was a fixed time stage at Dragon's Cup a few weeks ago that had you entering and leaving the shooting area. That I saw some pretty sketchy stuff there because people were pushing the time so hard. But it, I mean, it seemed like a fine stage. I just to me, whenever I look at a at, at one of these fixed time stages, whether it was the one I think the thing that kicked it off was the one at Nationals, Care Optics Nationals last year. Maybe that's the that's the first one I remember seeing, and that was a short course because that was all that was legal at the time with the rules changes that went into effect in March. Now you can have medium fixed time stages, which again, I, to me, it's just, I like a good medium stage, good medium course, just make it Comstock, but let everyone shoot all the targets and whoever shoots them the fastest, the most accuratest wins. But anyway, even, even the fixed time stage I thought was, was a good stage. I thought it was pretty interesting. I, I chose a pretty safe plan where I, I shot 18 of the 20 shots and in the end, my time was fine, but uh, dropping two deltas and a handful of Charlies just completely torpedoed me. But it was, uh, yeah, it was. They, I can't even really say that that was a bad stage. It was just if I had to pick one that was my least favorite, it was, uh, it was that one. But yeah, otherwise it was a, it was a good mix. There was a, a low port, an activating port, a couple of unloaded stages. There was one kind of stand in a box behind a Bianchi barricade, shoot a bunch of steel, a bunch of movers go kind of carnival ish stage. But it was, it was, you know, it was a straight up shooting test. I liked it. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, I wish that this is what, this is what every match was like, where all the stages were high quality. They were interesting. They were better than you would see at your average local match. So they're worth the trip. They're worth the higher fee, but they were also, a diverse test of skills. So, I mean, really the only thing that wasn't tested anywhere in the match was, was one-handed shooting or like really long distance. There was one really long popper shot, but that was, that was one target out of the whole match. 
but even that, I mean, there there was some there was some decent distance for sure. There was some very technical shooting. So yeah, I like I said, I I wish I wish every match was like this. And you know, there was definitely an element that because this wasn't a a state match, because this wasn't an area match. I, I I don't know. Maybe it's all in my head, but I just had the sense that everybody was just kind of happy to be there. Everybody, no, nobody was there because they had to be. Everybody who was competing there was there, and maybe it was there was this element that everybody was was putting themselves on this equal playing field of of shooting in a low cap division. So there were I think seven revolver shooters. There were a bunch of single stack and production guys, and then if you just had a limited gun, and you wanted to just come have fun. Then then there were a bunch of those guys just shooting pretty, you know, fancy limited guns, but just only loading 10 rounds in the mag. But there was definitely an element of, we don't need high cap. We don't need dots. We can just set up some interesting, challenging stages and and shoot them. And yeah, like I said, there, there was just this element that I, I can't quite put my finger on, but it just seemed like everybody wanted to be there. Everybody was in, not necessarily to, to shoot the division that gave you the most advantages, but was just interested in, in just a straight up shooting test with relatively limited gear you know, iron sights low capacity and i'll be honest i as much as i've complained over the years and talked about production 15 and how i wish uspsa would go to that shooting 10 round production on on well-designed stages i honestly not once during the day did i think Ugh, i have to do another reload because the the stages were designed so there wasn't really a spot where you were it was advantageous to post up and shoot 10 or 12 or 14 or 16 rounds from one position, which to me is, is just good stage design. You know, I've heard this discussion of, well, is, is which is the chicken and which is the egg is the fact that you have a bunch of match directors and stage designers who have 23 round magazines and dots on their guns. And so they're not thinking like a low cap shooter anymore, or is it that nobody shoots low cap? So nobody complains to them when they build these stages where the best stage plan is just to go to one spot and shoot 10, 12, 14 rounds. I, I don't know, but those stages are boring and I don't like them. And I, even in carry optics, even shooting a high cap division, it's not, it's still kind of boring. And so I, I don't know that they're really good for anyone, but I, I will say these stages, I don't, I don't even want to say that they were low cap friendly. I think they were just good stages. They were stages where there really were not many spots where you could see, I, I don't think there was any spot in the match where it was advantageous to shoot more than eight rounds without moving your feet. And in most cases, it was less than that. And so it just, the, the they were good stages. And so they were fun and interesting to shoot, even with only 10 rounds in the mag. And I mean, I will say, so it was a, it was a breeze to shoot. We shot 11 stages in, in a half day format. We had seven people on our squad, which means not, not a lot of downtime. And because the match was staff reset, we were, we were able to just, focus on shooting, which was nice because that way we were able to get video of each other, have time to load mags, sit down, take a break, drink a little water, have a, you know, have a snack or whatever, which again, when you're shooting in a half day format, isn't, isn't as critical, but when you're shooting on seven man squads, you're cycling through pretty darn quick. And again, I will say that I think the stages for the most part lent themselves really well to not really needing to, to show up too early. There was, there was one stage, the really big stage nine that that had a, a, it was just the most running, the most, it was just the most wide open shooting area. It definitely, I think, rewarded spending some time looking, but the the four minute walkthroughs and everything were were pretty straightforward. None of the stages were really tricky in any significant way. 
they were just, I think, straight up tests of, of shooting skill. And I should have said earlier, I'll have the the link to my match video from this match with the first and third person views uh, in the in the show notes of this episode. And yeah, like I said, the staff reset worked out well. That that stage nine that I mentioned, I want to say it was 29 rounds, something like that. It was definitely one of the longest, I think it was the second longest stage in the match. And it was a it was a big bay too. And and the shooters started all the way at the back and you had to score all the way around. And they assigned a, a squad of, I think, four pretty young guys, and they were they were getting after it. They were they were cycling shooters through that squad, through that stage real quick. Uh, it was it was honestly impressive to the point where there, there's no way that that stage would have run anywhere near that fast with uh, with just competitor reset. Even you know motivated, energetic competitors, they just they got into a rhythm. They had their assignments. They figured out how the stage was split up. It was a uh, it was textbook about just the the way that even a big stage with a, a small dedicated crew can can really run well. I also have to give a, a shout out to. Their chrono crew, including Sven, who was he was actually messaging me after the the podcast that I did about the running the chrono at the section last year, and he's got the the deluxe Cadillac setup. So he actually went and got two separate Lee single stage presses, one set up for nine, one set up for forty with the the bullet puller collars, and uh, yeah, he was you know that way it's it was no work at all. They they the one thing that you know I. I, I've talked about before. They they just had you at your first stage. You just put eight bullets in the in the in the Ziploc baggie and submitted it. Which, you know, if you were really trying to catch people, is not the best way. But they were on this. They were somewhat short staffed, and so I get it. You know, sometimes compromises have to be made. And again, I don't think most people are cheating. But it's my opinion that if you're going to have the chrono, if you can sample the, the ammo randomly, that's better. But obviously, that's a whole other discussion about you know not having to chrono every single person, which the rulebook currently says you have to, which I think is worth changing. But anyway, as far as actually having the setup, if you're going to chrono people, this this was the way to do it. They had the dual lab radars. They had the the whole station set up. And then, yeah, like I said, he had the, the the double bullet pullers. And so they were able to to just efficiently just crank through getting everything pulled. He said they were, they had a hammer puller that they were using for the 45s and the, the really stubborn forties or anything that was just the, the collet holder couldn't get a, get a handle of. But I, I, from my experience working the, the NC section last year, that's probably two or 3% of the, the bullets that come through. So for everything else, you can just crank it out with the, the press and, and them not having to switch back and forth. If, if you have the resources to invest as a section, that's, that's definitely the way to do it. And he had it mounted to some piece of, of, it looked like cabinet top plywood with some kind of waterproof lining. So it was, it was legit. I was suitably impressed. And then, I mean, just the, the whole, the whole setup of the match. So Leif Kunkel is the guy behind GX holsters. He's also the, I believe he's the president at Bluegrass Sportsman's League there. Uh, he is also the match director for this match and the Kentucky sectional, which is, I think six weeks, eight weeks from now. So he's, he's staying busy this year, but he, he is one of these guys who just, I mean, he's always looking for a better way to do things. So one thing that I noticed that, that I thought was really smart is he would take just standard eight foot wall segments and set them up on either side of any moving target and then run a tarp over the top. So the whole mover was 
had basically a giant rain shade on it. So if it were to rain, you wouldn't need to bag the movers because obviously bagging movers changes their their presentation and how they how they work. And so this was just a it was just a blanket prevention of that. And we ended up needing it. It was it was drizzling on and off for probably about half the stages that we shot. And I will say one thing that that was a bit of an unexpected side effect is it definitely makes those movers relatively more difficult because everything else is is brightly lit or as lit as the the conditions allow which in our case was mostly overcast until until the last few stages of the day but having the movers also be shaded from the sun definitely makes them 10 20% harder which as long as it's consistent for everyone is not really an issue but it was one of those things that i you know on a technical level i, I was like wow okay that's a really simple but effective solution but as a shooter i didn't it didn't really register until I'd shot a few. And I was like, why am I struggling with these more so than normal? And then I realized, well, when they're in shadow and you're, you're trying to to shoot with a front sight focus to get a, a really good shot call, then yeah, it, it definitely changes things. So that was an interesting challenge, but I also think a, a really interesting solution and definitely something to look at. If you could ideally find some kind of transparent opera, you know, I mean, they were just using just regular hardware store tarps or whatever. But yeah, if you could stretch some some kind of covering over the top that would let the light through but keep the rain out, that would be the the real the, the real bee's knees on that one. But again, it was just one of these things where as soon as you walk up and you see it, you're like, oh, of course, what a great idea. And then you just, why didn't I think about that? So I, I really appreciated that. He was trying to make sure that everything just kept running even even in the rain. Something else that we have done and I've seen done is, you know, attaching pieces of poster board or coroplast or something to the edge of walls just to make calling edge hits easier and to some degree get the shooter off the wall. So if they do clip it by a little bit, what the, all that they're shooting through is whatever the sacrificial material is and not the the actual two by two of the wall or, or what have you. And I was talking to him a little bit. He had some kind of stuff. He he said it was it was too expensive to really be mass producible, but he had used some kind of material and he made some kind of jig where he could cut these little, I don't know, they were about three inch wide strips of the of the stuff. I think probably four feet tall, three feet tall, something like that. But he had this very particular hole pattern cut in them. And the it was basically a, a, a circle in the middle and then a slot going up and down. And then you would put three button head screws spaced exactly the right distance apart into the edge of the piece of wood and leave them just backed out far enough that basically the the three holes in this in this piece of wall edger would slide over those three button head screws in the, the circular part of the cutout and then they would slide down into the slot and be locked in and as he was showing us you can just if you need to change it you just slide it up pop it off and then you can you can either flip it 180, so the shot, the side that's been getting shot is now on the inside, and the, the other side, the other clean side, is now exposed. You can pop it off and slot another one in, and because they're all exactly the same, the holes are cut in the same spot, there's no competitive equity issue because it's guaranteed to go back in in exactly the, the same spot because the, the screws are mounted to the wall. So there's no issue of, oh, if we take this one down, how do we staple up another one at exactly the same spot? Again, it was one of those things where... I thought that that just having any kind of wall edgers, any kind of coroplast, anything was progress. And then you show up and it's like Leif is like living five years in the future. I mean, he's just 
he's thinking of stuff that we're going to be using in when it trickles down to us, which I, I, again, I just thought was cool. He's obviously putting a lot of thought, not just in the, into the stages, not just into how to run the match, not just in having everything just generally be good, but even the little stuff of, of how to improve the, the standard solution for something like that, which, you know, I enjoyed it and I'm, I'm glad he's out there trying new stuff. And I hope there are other people out there elsewhere in the country trying stuff and, and those ideas will bubble to the surface and we'll, we'll all be able to take advantage of them. And then when the whole match was done, everybody went up to the, the clubhouse and they had a, a dinner for everyone. And it was, it was genuinely good food. Honestly, my, my only complaint was that I think it was the same vendor who did the barbecue lunch on the range. And I did get the barbecue lunch. I got a, a fairly small portion. I didn't want to eat a, a big heavy lunch, but it smelled really good. And I figured I wanted to you know, support them. And it was delicious. And my only complaint is the lunch was marginally tastier than the dinner. And so if they would have just had the lunch again for dinner, I would have been completely content. But I, I'm not going to complain too much. It was good. And uh, yeah, it was just cool. The The whole match, so the, the staff shot on Friday, there was a, a Saturday a.m. and Saturday p.m. flight. And then the way that Sunday worked, no, the, the match was done Saturday night. And then Leif offered to let people shoot the stages on Sunday as long as everybody who showed up helped tear down afterwards, which I thought was was pretty clever for the local folks. They get to to do a little more shooting, and then you have a, a crew on hand to to do the teardown. But for us that had traveled in from out of town, you know, we so it was an eight hour drive for for us. We drove up Friday. We didn't even get to the range because by the time we got there, it was it was dark. We just went to our hotel. But then we showed up Saturday morning, got to see the Saturday squads shooting, got to walk on some of the empty bays because there were a few stages that, or there there were fewer squads in the morning than than stages. And so we sort of got to, to look at stuff in the morning and then, you know, we did get our four minute walkthroughs, which like I said, on most of the stages was, was sufficient. But then, like I said, when the, when the Saturday PM squads were done, that was it. Everybody just went to the clubhouse and it was nice. Honestly, it's to, to go to a local match that actually has that communal aspect of just getting everybody together, handing out physical awards, having people clap for you. And, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't get any awards. I, I was the one doing all the clapping. I didn't get clapped for at any point, but there was just this sense of recognizing excellence, getting to see the people who won, getting to hang out and talk to folks and not just be sort of two ships passing in the night where maybe you see someone on the range and you can talk to them for 30 seconds or five minutes, but then you got to get to your next stage and they got to get to their next stage, that kind of thing. It was really cool. I, I actually wish that more matches would actually start earlier and then just wrap up Saturday evening so that Sunday can be a travel day for anyone that, that, that needs to travel for the match. And that way, if it is so, you know, compare this to something like IPSC nationals later this year, which is being shot as a Saturday, Sunday match. But if you're traveling for it, which I would have to do, it would be drive down on Friday, drive back on Monday. And, you know, all things being equal in terms of getting time off work and everything, it's, it's just nice to have one week where you're out, you have a Sunday travel day back, and then Monday you're you're back to work or whatever it is. So I think that pattern for the for a bigger match where people are traveling, so obviously an area match, a, a nationals match, I think just having the match wrap up on a Saturday worked great. I think it I think it's a really better way to do it all around versus being one of these where you end up having to travel back on a Monday and then you get back to work on a Tuesday and everybody's kind of got their week going and 
yeah, it's it's just nice to 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 have all your have all your time organized that way. So yeah, overall it was it was just an excellent match. I really could not I, I can't speak highly enough of it. I, I hope that he does something like it again. And yeah, I, I definitely would would shoot as many matches as I could that are that are like this, that are this good. It was it was totally worth the trip. Uh, as far as my shooting, I actually surprisingly I shot really surprisingly well, honestly, for not having a ton of live fire. I've been doing a decent amount of of dry fire and especially trying to follow the sort of, you know, coming out of the Eric Grafell class back in January, following this idea of not running the same target engagement order twice while also trying to focus on executing precise technique. And basically, like I said in the, the podcast after the class, which I think has has been my experience since then, what it basically does is it keeps a part of your brain occupied with thinking about what the next target is that you need to shoot. You can't just kind of trust that subconsciously you're going to shoot the right target order and or at the same time, you can't just kind of shoot whatever target order is easiest. So one thing that I've noticed when I don't do this, when I'll occasionally go back to sort of a regular style dry fire, is when I just kind of unthinkingly, oh, just shoot the array left to right, right to left or, or whatever, it encourages you to be lazy in a way that that you very rarely get to do in matches. And often, I know I've had the experience where I visualize shooting an array in a certain order, but when I come into the position, if I'm not thinking about it, then I do just default into a simple right to left, left to right type type order. And so to me, I definitely feel like having, having my practice be in this style where I'm always multi-processing both the technique that I want to manifest as well as the order which often is a stupid arbitrary order where I'm crossing over targets multiple times or something like that, or skipping a target, shooting a target twice. But it's the point is, it's not meant to be efficient. It's not what you would actually do in a match. It's meant to just be something arbitrary so you get used to not just shooting whatever's easiest, but coming up with an order and executing it and executing your planned order in addition to executing the techniques that you want to execute. I definitely feel like that is starting to show up in in my in my shooting on stages in the sense that not only am I executing stages to plan, but when the time comes, I'm also executing the techniques that I want to be executing. Now it wasn't flawless. There were definitely a few spots where there were things that I've been doing in practice, such as uh, right to left movement, trying to take my hand off the gun, keep the gun down range instead of moving close to the 180. That didn't happen, but okay, great. I, I just keep, keep working on those. But in terms of, being a match, I, I I don't know that there is a year where I've shot a match in April, so pretty early in the season, where I felt like I was shooting at this level, and I definitely feel like I'm shooting, I shot this match better than I've shot any match in the last few years. So, again, it seems like it's working. The The one sort of thing that, that I've really been doing a lot recently is that I've just left my timer set to a, a seven-second part-time and then instead of trying to work the part-time down on you know some given target array, because again, every time you pick a different target order, it ends up, it's never going to be exactly right. So unless you're doing the same target order over and over again, you're one part-time, you can't really work a single part-time down. But I've just left it on the seven seconds, and then I just try and do as much as I can in that, in that part-time. So it might be that I pick a target order that has a lot of long transitions or transitions to tight partials versus the open partials in my array. 
uh, obviously I, I change up the array every time I set it up. They're on magnetic backers that just hang on the rails of, of my garage door. And so every time I set them up, the targets are in a slightly different order. Uh, but within them, there are a couple open targets. There are a couple somewhat tight hardcover. There's a tuxedo. There's a pretty tight no shoot. But I'll, I'll pick an order where if I if the whatever I want to do, if it has a decent amount of movement in it, then I'll pick a, a fairly easy order where maybe it's mostly open targets with only one or two tight ones. But if I want to do something that has less movement, I'll up the, the target difficulty or I'll start with an easy order where it's a bunch of short transitions. And if I can do that in, in seven seconds, then I'll start picking progressively harder orders or do stuff like leading into this match, knowing that I was going to be doing a lot of reloads, not just from the first pouch, but back to the second I was doing, I'd, I'd pick two targets and do you know two, re, two targets, reload, two targets, reload, two targets in seven seconds. And again, it's one of those where, okay, once you can do it with some short transitions or some relatively easy targets, start trying to pick orders that are a next step harder. And it's pretty interesting that what I found is having done this for a little while, I'm starting to get a sense of what is and isn't capable and what I can and can't do. Not in a sort of numeric sense of, oh, that's definitely a 0.2 transition or a 0.3, but just a, okay, this is a lot harder than that, or this is a little harder than that. This is within my ability to do within seven seconds. This is not. So that that style of dry fire has been paying dividends. Again, maybe it's just novelty. Maybe it's the new thing. It's a change from the way I've been dry firing for nine years now. But it feels like it's working. I feel like I'm I'm shooting the best that I've shot in a long time. And so it puts a lot of gas in the tank. I'm, I'm excited to keep doing it, keep dry firing, and hopefully keep getting better. Definitely, I feel a sort of rejuvenation in, in my motivation, which is which is good. I've, I've missed that. All right. Uh, so we'll wrap up with a quick board drama update. So I'm actually recording this Wednesday night. Typically I record Thursday night and then post Friday around the end of the workday. But because I am recording a podcast interview tomorrow night, I'm recording a day early. So if some information comes out on Thursday that I didn't have, then it won't be in this. But the sort of latest news is that well, first of all, Scott Arnberg, Area 3 director, went on the Paracast and did another kind of update and give his thoughts about everything that's going on with Yemen and Mel. And what I really appreciated about that is, first of all, that Tom and Robert didn't shy away from asking the tough questions, which I think someone needs to be asked. And Scott answered as much as he could. And when he couldn't, he just said, I don't want to talk about that or I can't talk about that. I don't want to risk confidentiality by talking about that, which everybody understands. The last thing that anybody wants is to give the other people on the board anything to throw at him in terms of getting him off the board. So the fact that he was willing to come on, answer what he could, and just go right up to the line and say, I can't answer that, even even just saying that, even just coming on and being present and answering questions and saying what you can't answer, I, I appreciate it. And, and I'll have the link to that in the, the show notes for this one as well. And in that episode, he talked about the fact that he had called for a special meeting, which is something that's provided for in the bylaws. Basically, three members of the board or the president can call a special meeting that is just focused on one topic. It's not about it's not a, a full board meeting where they can handle new business and old business or whatever, but it's just a, a special meeting for a single topic. And he had called for a special meeting and it sounded like it was going to happen from what I've heard, what people are saying, it sounds like it probably happened last night, uh, Tuesday, May 2nd. 
and it looks like it seems what what Scott was saying the topic that he was calling it for was to discuss the situation with Mel Rodero not being a, a range officer which practical shooting insights reported over the weekend that he had shown up unannounced at a an RO class in Montana and he lives in Texas so how he got to Montana is is a question but basically he was trying to get his RO certification as soon as possible and it looks like he got it he is now listed as an RO on the website and so it sounds like that topic was discussed at the board meeting yesterday but no action was taken it seems like Mel is going to be allowed to stay even though by the plain reading of the bylaws he is considered to have resigned as soon as he took office and then at the same time people noticed today that Yemen has once again been scrubbed from the USPSA contact page his name and picture are gone as president which barring an official announcement or board of directors minutes from this special meeting which again might come out tomorrow I don't know but they haven't been released yet. Uh, it looks like Yemen is out. They they have successfully nailed him with this discipline complaint, and Mel gets to skate on not being eligible as a board member. And it looks like that's it looks like that's where we're at. So hopefully we'll, we'll have more official information going forward. But yeah, it looks like the board has basically done whatever they wanted to and, and gotten the outcome that they wanted. And I mean, honestly, I, I just see this as making the need for change more and more obvious. So I, you know, like I said, I, I haven't been Yemen's greatest cheerleader. I don't think he deserves to be run out like this, but it seems like what's done is done. And now all we can do is <laughs> look at, look at uh, who's running in the election, which the president election looks like it has eight candidates in it currently, which is, that's going to make for an interesting initial election. Uh, and then since the May 1st filing deadline has passed, they have now updated the website and it looks like the area six election that I'm running in is going to be a four way election. Bruce Wells had previously told me that he was not going to run, but that was before all this Yemen and Mel stuff happened. And he is still listed on this page as running. He could decline to run, but he is still listed on this page as running. So I'm going to assume until he is taken off that he is. And then obviously it'll be the, two candidates that have been declared for a while, Kyle Stevens and myself, and then Matt Hopkins, who now lives in South Carolina, he has he has put his name in as well. So the Area 6 election will be a four-way election, and obviously we'll, we'll go to a runoff. And so at that point, you know, my goal becomes to make it to the runoff, and then hopefully whoever I'm against in the runoff, I I can win there too. But we will uh, we'll see how it goes. I will I will keep podcasting, I'll keep shooting. I will be at Area 6 a couple weeks from now and hopefully I'll get to see some of you folks, talk to you and if not, I look forward to hearing from you via email. Let me know what you're seeing, what you're hearing as as things progress. <laughs> Take a look at the the list of presidential candidates. It's it's a pretty wild uh pretty wild bunch, but yeah, we are in for inter- interesting times. Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. My email is bennettberryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.